Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see you today. Happy last week of August. Uh, hopefully it starts cooling off soon. I know I, for one, cannot wait for the fall weather. Uh, we're going to be back in 2 Timothy today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be in chapter 4, and we'll be finishing out our study today that's gone on over the course of this year. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 22. If you're using the Bibles provided, uh, you'll find that text on pages 996 and 997. I got a question for you. Why is risk so scary? Why is risk so scary? Why do we too often do everything we possibly can to avoid it? You see, risk is essentially anything that opens us up to potential harm or loss, anything outside of our comfort zone. And in a world like ours, opportunities for risk seem to be anywhere and everywhere. Anything seems like it can potentially harm us or bring us loss in one form or another. Any wrong step could potentially open us up to hurt, which is why this world tends to prioritize that which appears to limit potential risk exposure, whether it's backup plan after backup plan, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, or, you know, in healthcare, regular preventative scans and tests or things like parachutes. Uh, or diversified portfolios be another example. We're always guarding against risk. We lower our expectations. We install security systems. We hedge our bets. It's kind of like the responsible gambler at a poker table who instead of going all in, he kind of tempers it. He's just doing enough just to get by, just to stay in the game. In other words, it's, it's all a form of kind of playing it safe to some degree. One foot in, one foot out. And while this is very common across all kind of spheres of ordinary and real life, think of like our artists in pop culture, for example, they would have us influenced towards the alternative, towards taking risks towards the ideal life, towards following your dreams or uh, never settling for the safe option. Uh, think of one famous quote, for example, it says, playing it safe is actually the riskiest choice we can ever make in life. Take some popular movies, for example. Think of like the Titanic or uh, uh, the Notebook, where main characters refuse to settle for what's safe and instead follow what their hearts truly desire. You see, it's easy for the arts to romanticize risk because at the end of the day, it's not real. But when we're dealing with risk in real life, friends, risk is hard. It's scary and it's uncomfortable, which is why we're always tempted to hedge and play it safe. But friends, what if minimizing risk actually isn't a viable option in this life? What if there isn't such a thing as playing it safe or perhaps getting the best out of both worlds? What if the Christian life actually requires risk? 
I can't help but think of um, pastor and theologian John Piper when he wrote this piece when referencing risk. He wrote, it is the will of God that we be uncertain about how life on this earth will turn out for us. And therefore, it is the will of him that we take risks for the cause of God. It is not the impulse of heroism or the lust for adventure or the courage of self-reliance or the need to earn God's favor. It is simple trust in Christ that in him God will do everything necessary, every good poised to bless us and every evil arrayed against us will in the end help us boast only in the cross. Faith in these promises frees us to risk and to find in our own experience that it is better to lose our life than to waste it. And so church, today we're going to ask the question, what would it look like to go all in for the sake of Christ? What would it look like to truly give it all for the sake of the gospel? To be utterly spent for the kingdom of God? Well, we're finishing, again, our series in the book of 2 Timothy. The title of this series has been A Guide for Faithfulness. Because I believe that's exactly what we see throughout this letter. It's a blueprint for the faithful Christian life. And so how then? How, how can we do this? What does this book had to say about this? Well, if you remember, the main point or the title of each sermon in this series has actually been an imperative that corresponds with its chapter. So for example, 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you look right there in your Bible, maybe it's back one page, guard, taken straight from chapter 1 verse 14. You see it there, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So chapter one, guard, Go look over to chapter two, entrust, taken straight from chapter two, verse two. And then last time, chapter three, continue, taken from chapter three, verse 14. So guard the gospel, entrust the gospel, continue in the gospel, and today, chapter four, preach the gospel. And so as we consider this in today, particularly in chapter four with Paul's final words, we're going to do so through two points. You ready? So point number one is a life worth living. That's verse one through eight, a life worth living. And then point number two, a life worth leaving. That's verse 9 through verse 22. So a life worth living and a life worth leaving as we close out this book. And my prayer today is that we would see Christ in this text, church. That we would commit ourselves to his cause and his purposes. And that we would leave this, uh, this gathering today with better clarity from his word. How we can live this life and how we can leave this life faithfully. Let's go ahead and read our first point together now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves. Teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So if our first point today is a life worth living, how then can we do so faithfully, church? Well, this section gives us three ways we can do that, uh, do that faithfully. You could call them subpoints if you like. But the first one is to live this life with urgency. With urgency. Now, where do I get that from? Look with me again at uh, verse number one. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So it's like a championship moment here. He says, So as this letter uh, has entrusted us now to guard the gospel and entrust the gospel and continue in the gospel, Paul is basically building momentum as he gets to this last chapter, and his emphasis and level on urgency is now code red. I charge you, he says, as he's getting ready to sign off. And then in verse 2, preach the word. Now why is this such a big deal? It's because we worship a living God, church, a living God who speaks, a God who creates and gives life by his word. From the garden to the valley of dry bones and to the conversion of yours and my souls and everything in between, the God who speaks. In fact, as a couple of pastor friends of ours wrote in one of their books on preaching, God speaking is the very basis of our relationship with him. We come to know him through his word. We are kept by his word. And we commune with him by his word. God speaks, church, and therefore we preach because God's Spirit uses the proclamation of His Word to give you and I spiritual life. Amen? And church, if I may, just a quick note here on expositional preaching. Here at New Covenant Baptist Church, we unashamedly prioritize expositional preaching above any other form of preaching. And what I mean by that is, very simply, we take great care to expose God's Word to God's people. Nothing more, nothing less. Pastor James and I are not coming into this pulpit with any sort of agenda outside of that which is God's. That's why we're going through 2 Timothy 1, and then we're going through 2 Timothy 2, and then 2 Timothy 3, and now 2 Timothy 4. Instead of, you know, this week, you know, what's the hot topic? I really want to talk about dating. And then next week, okay, uh, our budget's a little lacking. I really want to talk about giving. And then the next week, something big happens in the news. I really want to talk about the current events that week. And then I'm just going to find whatever Bible passages I want to kind of back my point. That's not what we're looking to do. Now, listen very closely to me, okay? It is very possible, 
It is very remarkably possible. In fact, we see it so often across this world on a regular basis that people will preach from the Bible without actually preaching the Bible. They preach from God's Word without actually giving you God's Word. You see, the Bible kind of serves as a trampoline or like a launching pad for what they really want to say. And if that's the case, well then honestly, you can literally make the Bible say anything you want it to. And church, I want you to care, I mean generally, Pastor James and I are still your your pastors, but generally I want you to care very little of what we have to say up against what God has to say, okay? And so that's why we commit ourselves and expect you to hold us accountable to to preach what God the Holy Spirit intended to say in his word, because his word is what's going to ultimately carry supernatural weight in your life. His word is what's going to, you know, feed your souls, His word is going to hold you fast to the end more than any human possibly can. I don't care how many followers on Twitter they might have. And so Paul says, preach the word. The word being the gospel as we see uh, consistently throughout the New Testament. But there's more here as well because remember, Paul's just said a couple of verses prior. He says in chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. And that's Uh, He also mentions the sacred writings in chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He says they're able to make Timothy wise for salvation. So he's referring to the Old Testament here. So essentially the whole counsel of God culminating in the gospel of Jesus Christ, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, he says. Or in other words, stand up for the truth. Correct falsehood. Encourage one another. This means when the in season, out of season means when people are willing to listen and when they're not. When Christianity is popular and when it's not. When you find yourself in the middle of Christendom or in the middle of nominal conservative evangelical Christianity, and when you find yourself in the middle of progressive Marxist secularism, when you find yourself in and around brothers in the church, brothers and sisters in the church, and with your old friends from high school, when you're with your coworkers who would otherwise have no idea that you're a Christian, preach the word. Preach the gospel. Why? I mean, I guess maybe when it's in season, that makes sense. Uh, Maybe when people want to listen, maybe when there's an appetite for Christianity, maybe, yeah, that sounds good. But why would we ever preach the word? Why would we ever share the truth when we know and we see that everybody seems to hate the truth? Well, friends, it's because it's the only thing that saves. It's the only thing that delivers from the wrath to come. And nothing No time period, no event is ever going to change that. And why so urgent? Look with me at verse 3. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They can't stand it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So why so urgent? It's because people, even those who claim to be Christians, 
maybe themselves are self-deceived into thinking they actually are Christians, this text says they're only in it for themselves. They only want and are willing to listen to what they already want to hear. You can encourage them. You can talk about love. You can talk about peace. You can talk about prosperity. But don't you dare tell them they need to repent. Don't you dare call them to live according to God's word. Don't you dare tell them they need to submit to God's church. Because the second you do that, they will say goodbye to you. And they will say goodbye to the truth. And in saying goodbye to the truth, they will say hello to an eternity in hell apart from God. You see one brother over in England, he said that their itching ears is like curating news feeds, like in your social media accounts or your news channels, only following those who agree with you and your worldview, only listening to the voices of those who flatter you, who tell you exactly what you want to hear. It's like you feel an itch. That's what it's saying, the itching ears. They feel an itch. You just have to scratch it. You have to fill it with that void of something that feels good, that sounds good to your flesh. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You are not all victims who are being taken advantage of, uh, of by false teaching. No, it's all about you now. You're just sponsoring what you already want to be told. You're active participants now. You're accomplices to your own destruction. Friends, you may be tempted sometimes to think that the best way to love people is to not confront them by not telling them the truth, by not getting to the gospel, by not making things awkward or unsettling. Who wants to do that? But I promise you it's not the way to best love people, and God promises you it's not the best way to love people in the long run. That's the worst way because you're holding, you're withholding from them that which could save them. And church, as a brief side note, this is why we're a congregational church, meaning it's the congregation that holds the final authority. Because time after time, what we see in the New Testament, what we find is that it's actually the church that is responsible for the teaching they're willing to endure and support and sponsor, as we see right here. Preaching affects everybody, from the pastor to the evangelist to the everyday Christian, preaching affects everybody. And so Paul's word here to Timothy could not be more timely to us as well. What is the life worth living? Well, it's the life lived with urgency. The second way we can live faithfully in addition to urgency is with discipline. So urgency, now discipline. You'll notice we skipped briefly over the end of verse 2. Paul says, yes, preach the word with urgency. Yet he instructs us to do so with complete patience and teaching. And then if you look down at verse 5 with me, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Patient and instructive. Sober-minded, meaning like calm, cool, collected, self-controlled, or in other words, not impulsive or a hothead. Enduring suffering and sharing the good news of the gospel with others through evangelism. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen the Apostle Paul place a premium on patience and teaching. 
If you recall the qualifications of elder that he lays down in 1 Timothy as well as Titus, what do we see? It says, able to teach, sober-minded, self-controlled. So right here, he's calling Timothy back to his fundamental responsibilities as a pastor. Uh, on this, John Calvin once wrote that the pastor needs to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and, and, and thieves. So we have the joy right now as a church of considering our brother Jacob Hawley for the office of elder over the next month. And what a reminder this is that this is the fundamental, these are the fundamental aspects of such a duty, complete patience and instructing the flock through sound doctrine. In church, while this specific text is aimed at pastors, Timothy in particular, surely God expects these kinds of things from all of his children to some degree. Patience, endurance, self-control, and sound doctrine. Kind of like farmers. We see in chapter 2, verse 6, it says the hardworking farmer, uh, it's him who ought to have the first share of the crops. And so in terms of our text today, preach, pray, and trust. Preach the gospel, pray for conversion and fruit, and trust in God's promises and sovereignty. So anyone here with unsaved family members, unsaved loved ones, unsaved friends and coworkers, live this life with discipline, brothers and sisters, like a farmer disciplining himself daily to wake up early, to work the soil, to plant the seeds, and then hope for trust, or trust and hope for growth. And notice each of these things stand in stark contrast to those with itching ears described up in verse 3. While they refuse to endure sound teaching, you respond with patience as you, pre as you teach. While they only listen to those who tell them what they want to hear, you remain sober-minded. And while they swerve from the truth and wander off into myths, you share the gospel you fulfill your ministry, friends. How do we live this life faithfully? With urgency, with discipline, and finally, our last point under point number one, with the end in full view. What is the life worth living? It's the life lived with the end in full view, a laser focus on the end. We see starting in verse six. Look down there with me. It says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So right here, Paul says he's done it. He's made it to the end. And he's kept the faith. Church, that is a remarkable, glorious, and miraculous thought that we too often take for granted. Let me be exceedingly clear on this. To make it to the end in faith is an absolute miracle and only possible by the power of God. Amen? So this man who's given it all, who's been imprisoned, who's been beaten and crushed, and in a few verses we'll see abandoned as well. He's made it. He's held on as God has held on to him. And so how? How did Paul do it? I mean, that's what we want to know. Enter verse 8, which is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Look with me. It says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul makes it to the end because he's lived this life in light of that very end. The day of the Lord drove everything. The day of the Lord was the lens by which he saw everything. And his prayer and my prayer is that we would do the same, that we would live this day in light of that day. Not our wedding day, not our graduation day, not the day we sign that offer or buy that house, not the day we finally retire after decades of hard work. No, the day we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. And so is that true for you today? Brothers and sisters, are you living this day in light of that day? And if you're not, I implore you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. There's grace for that, and there's grace for you, and there's still time. But listen to me, it's not just the end of the first uh, section which has the full end in view. Look back with me at verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So this section is bookended by the return of Jesus Christ. It's the entirety of the shape of one's ministry and life that is to be fully informed by the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ at the very end. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, he is spent for the sake of the gospel, start to finish. You ever work, so, work out so hard or go for such a long run that once you, you get home, you can barely walk, and, uh, but it kind of feels good at the same time? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. Uh, this, this past week, I played soccer with a bunch of y'all, and now that I have two kids and I'm starting to feel my age just a little bit, uh, that's the hardest I've gone in a long time. And that night when I laid down, I had absolutely nothing left. I felt like I'd been put through a blender when I woke up in the morning. But friends, don't you want that out of your Christian life? When you see the Lord Jesus face to face, Don't you want to be able to say, Lord, I gave it all. I left it all out there. There's nothing left in the tank. Only for him to look back at you and reply, well done, my good and faithful servant. What's preventing you right now? I mean, right now, friends, truthfully. What's preventing you right now from being able to say that? What's stopping you from being spent for the cause of Christ? If we walk out of here today and have an accident on the pike or on I-270, don't come face to face with the Lord Jesus and have any regrets about the way you lived your life. Is it perhaps the structures and the norms of this modern world that dictate what you're supposed to be doing in life? I'm only 18, I'm only 32, I'm only 54. 
this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Maybe when I pass into the next, ga- uh, next decade, I'll, I'll, I'll switch gears. Maybe that's when I'll go all in for the sake of the Lord. Maybe perhaps it's your fear of man. Maybe your parents, your coworkers, or your friends. Maybe perhaps it's a persistent sin that you've kept hidden, but you are absolutely drowning it, my friend. Are you, as chapter 2, verse 4 puts it, a soldier entangled in civilian pursuits? In any case, we might respond, you know, it's, Jeremy, I'm just trying my best. It's just so hard to think that far out. There's so much going on right now. I just need a little time. But here's the thing. I'm not going to give you that because we already do just about everything with the future in view, with the future in mind anyways. We do everything with some sort of expectation just about, some sort of hope. We study and graduate to get that job. We exercise to stay alive longer. We work hard to reach that promotion. We, we save for retirement. We date to get married. We get married to have children and on and on and on. Without a doubt, we do so many of these things in light of the future, friends. Well, then why is it so hard to live our lives all in with no hedging of our bets for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus? where our future and our hope can be glorious and secure forever. And I think it's all about faith, church. I think it's faith. Our sinful hearts are so prone to store up our treasures on earth that we can see rather than our treasures in heaven, which we can't immediately see. But that's why we gather every week, church. That's why we gather to recalibrate our hearts around God's word. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now, to sing God's word, to pray God's word, and to hear God's word preached. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and kingdom, preach the word. And so what does that look like? I think it looks something like this, friends. You see, there is a God of the universe, He created all things visible and invisible, which oddly enough, almost every single scientist is going to believe that 95%, over 95% of this universe is actually invisible. 95% we can't see, detect, or even comprehend. This God created all of it, including you and I. And then created us to be in relationship with him, to know him, to know his goodness, to love him, to love his mercy, to be in everlasting fellowship with him. But friends, visitors, we said, no, no, you will not rule over us. You will not tell us who we are. You will not tell us how to live. You will not be our God And we continue doing this to this day. We're the God of our lives. We know what's best. We manifest and speak into existence our own happiness and our own destiny, so we think. And as a result, we're separated from God. We've become bathed in sin from the time of our mother's womb. Our rebellion against God runs through our veins. It's all we've ever known. 
This world has lived apart from God and continues to live apart from God and will forever live apart from God under his divine wrath against evil for all eternity. And left to ourselves, left to our plans, left to our performance, we have absolutely no hope. Death is coming for you. Death is coming for me. And there's nothing you and I could ever do about it. But here's the thing. The eternal God of this universe came into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. A literal person in history, the fullness of God dwelled bodily among us. And he lived in our place by doing what we couldn't and wouldn't. And he died in our place and then rose again as the catalyst for our hope. You want to know how you can muster up the faith to truly believe that when you die, you'll rise again? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He came once to save, but oh, friends, he is coming again to judge. To judge the living and the dead. Anyone and everyone who has ever existed, who will ever exist, and he calls on you and I to turn from our sins. Turn from our idolatry. Turn from our obsession and our love of self that we think is going to fill and satisfy us and turn to him and trust in Him for full forgiveness of sin, for eternal satisfaction, and for glorious pleasures forevermore. You don't have to keep chasing the wind, friends. I plead with you, trust in Him today. Commit your life to Him today. Commit your all to Him today. You don't have to play it safe with Him. You don't have to play it safe on your eternal destiny. He's coming soon. So whether you find yourself in a time and place where Christianity is popular or seen as favorable, or whether you're in a time and place where it's absolutely ridiculed and despised, hold fast, Christian. Hold fast to the end. There will be people who hate you. There will be people among you who you thought were your Christian brothers and sisters, but you'll turn around and be absolutely stunned when you learn that they themselves have been taken captive by the things of the world and have wandered off into the mist this world feeds them. Some of you, this has already happened. Some of you, this has happened multiple times. And the one who wanders off into myths, it's the one who doesn't live urgently. It's the one who doesn't live with discipline. It's the one who doesn't live with the end in full view. Or in other words, it's the one who lives complacently. It's the one who lives impulsively. It's the one who lives for today and the things and the pleasures of this world. But as for you, hold firm. Endure. Lean into Christ and give him your all and be spent for the sake of the gospel because in an instant... This world is going to pass away, friends, and there will be you, and there will be Christ, and you will either run from him in terror, or you will run to him in delight and in tears of joy, where you will find an eternal rest for your soul. This is the faithful life. It's the life worth living. It's the life poured out for the furtherance of the gospel and the deliverance of God's people. So moving on then to our second point, a shorter point, 
We've seen the life worth living. Let's now turn to the life worth leaving. Look with me at verses 9 through 22. I'm going to go ahead and read. It says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in my ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as does Pudens and Lydens and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Church, when the time comes and the Lord calls you home, this life will be a life worth leaving. I think of Paul elsewhere in his writings when he wrote that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so when that time comes, and for some of us that will be very soon, and for some of us by the Lord's grace, we may have many several more decades. Regardless, how are we to do so? How are we to leave this life faithfully? Similar to our first point, I have three ways we can live the, leave this life faithfully. We've talked about the need for urgency, the need for discipline, and for focus on the end in our daily lives. And so now when the time comes and the curtains are closing, just as it was for Paul here, how are we to conduct ourselves three ways? Number one, in steadiness. Number two, in fellowship. And number three, in confidence. Steadiness, fellowship, and confidence. So number one here, steadiness. Why steadiness? I mean, several reasons, I think. First and foremost, we see in the face of death, Paul is remarkably practical. We don't see him freaking out and making like last wishes or being consumed by the moment. He says, I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Bring my cloak, books, and parchments in verse 13, which some have taken the means writing, scripture, potentially. I don't think there's any way we can know for sure. But more than just practicality, I think the thing that stands out is Paul's steady response to the hurt and the harm done to him, even those closest to him. In verse 10, he writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. I mean, friends, what a heartbreaking and sobering text that is. This is one of Paul's missionary associates. Paul speaks of him as his fellow worker in, in, in uh, uh, Colossians. In, in Philemon, says his fellow worker in the gospel. And now here he is when the stakes are at their highest and Paul is in, in chains at the end of his life. And where's Demas? He's nowhere to be found. Gone. 
entranced by the world. His mind is far more set on the present day than on Christ's future appearing. I've used this illustration before. It's, it's kind of like a good quarterback, maybe Tom Brady, best of all. Uh, yet he's certainly paying attention to what's going on right in front of him. The defense is coming at him. He's trying to scramble and make a play. And yet in the midst of it, he's never losing sight of the end zone. Never losing sight of that end goal, the main objective. But here what we see in a tragic account is Demas being so consumed by what's going on right in front of him, he's lost sight of the gospel. He's lost sight of the end goal. He's lost sight of the main objective of his life. And who knows, perhaps Demas still claimed to be a Christian. Perhaps in his mind, he's not turning his back on the faith. He's just kind of turning his back on the suffering and unpopularity that comes with it. But regardless, you cannot divorce Christ from his cross. He's deserted the true gospel. And friends, what about you? Are you in love with this present world? I mean, really, look at me. Ask yourself. What's dominating your thoughts today? What's dominating? What's controlling your emotions? Where are your priorities at? Are you just kind of moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, longing for, you know, just the next thing, the next achievement in life until you run to the end of the rope and your life is gone and there's nothing there? It says, John Piper said, he said, follow with me here, he said, there's a massive difference between a confident movement of faith and craving movement of frustration. Confident movement of faith, craving movement of frustration. The com confident movement of faith finds contentment and joy in where God has you and what he's doing in the world and in your life. Whereas the craving moment of frustration is just always frustrated by the, sa the status quo, always just needs the next thing, always lusting after the next thing in order to be happy. Brothers and sisters, are your thoughts dominated or characterized by this day or by that day? Are you hedging your bets in this life, just trying to get the best out of both worlds, one foot in, one foot out, perhaps just kind of sneak in through the kingdom at the last second unscathed? On your deathbed, you'll say the prayer and Jesus will save you and you'll say, oh, I'm done with the things of this life. I think of J.C. Ryle in his book, Thoughts for Young Men. Again, he writes, repentance, pay close attention here, friends. Listen to this, write this down. He says, repentance and faith are the gifts of God and gifts that he often withholds when they have been long offered in vain. Believe me, you will find no easy matter just to turn to God whenever you please. And then look at verse 14 with me. He, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. So Paul here, he has an ardent opponent to his message. And Paul is calling, uh, uh, calling him out for who he is. Now, when it comes to living in this life and leaving this life, well, I don't think our primary takeaways from these verses are, okay, how can I look at Demas and how can I look at Alexander and not be like them? That's one takeaway. It could be a secondary. I don't think it's what we're supposed to take away specifically from this text. And though we would never want to follow in either one of their footsteps, I think our main takeaway is ministry is hard. Ministry is hard. 
The Christian life is hard. People are hard. Sin is hard. It's okay to acknowledge that and grieve that. People will hurt you. People will betray you. Even the people you never thought would. The people you least expected. And while we're not called to like a certain type of stoicism or numbness or denial of the heartbreak of such events, we are called, brothers and sisters, to a very real, a very steady, very sobering type of trust in our Lord Jesus and His will. Hardship will happen. Betrayal will happen. And the Lord is not any less faithful to you today than He was yesterday or than He will be tomorrow. He's got you, friends, just as he had Paul, which is why the Apostle Paul could remain steady and run this race and endure this life and fulfill his ministry because the reality of sins didn't surprise, sin didn't surprise him. And the faithfulness of God never escaped him. Amen? Amen. So leave this life in steadiness. Next up, leave this life in fellowship. Paul writes at the beginning of the section, do your best to come to me soon. And then once again, if you look down at verse 21, he bookends it again. He says, do your best to come to me before winter. So further evidence that Paul is not advocating for a type of stoic, lonesome, lone wolf form of Christianity. No, he wants his closest companions by his side when he goes out. He recognizes what a good gift and provision of God that faithful friends are, especially when his spirit is downcast and lonely. We saw this in chapter 1 of the book when, when Onesiphorus sought Paul out and wasn't afraid of his chains when everyone else was. And we see him make another appearance, Onesiphorus, that is again here in verse 19 where Paul instructs Timothy to greet the household of Onesiphorus. Uh, verse 11, he says that Luke alone is with him where he calls him uh, the beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4. Luke, the, the, gospel, the, the author of the gospel of Luke and, and of Acts. We see Prisca and Aquila in verse 19, and Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia in verse 21. And notably, uh, thinking about what we're thinking about today, we see Mark. Look at verse 11. We see Mark, the same Mark who deserted Paul himself at one point, has since turned from his ways and proven faithful in the end. What an encouragement that is, church. And then we see some neutral characters or some imperceptible perceptible characters, people who were close with Paul in his ministry, and we're not entirely sure of where they ended up. We're not entirely sure. So, for example, we see Crescens has gone to Galatia in verse 10. We see Titus to Dalmatia, Erastus in Corinth. Again, we're not really sure. Did they abandon the gospel? Have they remained faithful? But in considering all of them today, look at me. Where would you fall, Christian? What would be said of you in Paul's final moments if you were right there? Would you be nowhere to be found like Demas, enjoying the pleasures of the world and the life, the convenient life, how you want to live it according to your ways? Would you be potentially indifferent, maybe wanting to be a Christian but rejecting the hardships of such a call? Or would you be found enduring the hostility, enduring 
the sorrow, lifting your head upwards to the Lord, even through tears. You see, in our final moments, we see what really matters in life. And y'all, we need good friends. We need gospel fellowship. That's the case for young singles. That goes for mature fathers and mothers. But it needs to be the right kind of fellowship. Some of you right this very moment, I'm speaking to you, are keeping absolutely terrible company in your private life. Others of us find ourselves in the opposite boat. We've come to isolate and seclude ourselves, especially in the past years of COVID. But we see right here that we need each other. That's why church membership is so important. We need gospel, covenanted fellowship. We need accountability. We need brothers and sisters we can open up to and be honest with our, uh, about our fears and our failures and our stumblings in life because that kind of fellowship is the kind of fellowship that's going to point you to Christ to the very end. That's the kind of fellowship that's going to point you to his promises. Which brings us to our final way we are to leave this life, which is in total confidence in the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. In confidence. Look with me at verse 16 through 18 again. It says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is it. He's staring death in the face. And how interesting it is that this man who's come to the end of his life, who's given it all for the sake of the gospel, who's poured himself out as a sacrificial drink offering for the sake of the church. How strange it is, friends, that this is the Lord's plan for him. How strange it is that, that this is how such a servant would die. Deserted. Lonely. Cold. And at the hands of the Romans. I'll never forget when I was in Rome about eight years ago. Uh, you know, if anyone's been to Rome before, there's so much to do. There's so many places to go and, and sights to see. And I think of all the European cities, uh, there's definitely ones I would prefer over, over, uh, over Rome. But I'd probably say Rome is the city you just can't miss. So if you're going and you get one, one visit, I would say go to Rome. Um, but there's so much history. You've got the Colosseum, you've got the Vatican, you've got the Roman Forum, all the famous fountains and monuments. Uh, I'll never forget having just visited the, the, the Vatican and the, the ornate basilicas that are there and the Sistine Chapel. But the sparkle and the glitz and the grandeur of the Sistine Chapel and the Vatican City. And then I headed over to the Colosseum. And, and when you're at the Colosseum, if you walk out of it, there's the Roman Forum right next to it, which is like, uh, 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 yeah, literally a stone's throw. And uh, if you go through the Roman Forum or just on the other side of it, there's this tiny, dark, gloomy little couple of prison cells uh, called the Mamertine Prison. Uh, and it's where it's believed that Paul actually wrote this letter in jail before being carried outside of the city and executed. 
Uh, I went to go visit it. It's small. It's not easily accessible. There's no real signs. Nobody's going there as any kind of tourist attraction. Um, and again, I just thought how interesting this is. You've got the Vatican and everything there on one side of town, everything it stands for historically and symbolically. And then you have this little inglorious little prison cell on the other side of town where one of the chief apostles of the Lord Jesus was held and penned one of his final letters. And after I sat there for a bit and thought about it and read this letter right here in the place where it was potentially authored in the first place, it just makes so much sense. I mean, this is classic gospel Christianity. The man who was instrumental in the New Testament church and in the authoring of the majority of the New Testament books died so insignificantly, at least in the eyes of the world, that is. But you see, Paul wasn't looking for a state funeral. He knew in whom he had trusted. He knew that God would judge the evil deeds. He was looking forward to that crown of righteousness that was going to be bestowed on him. He knew that his ultimate rescue was not being delivered out of his prison cell, but rather being delivered out of his bondage to sin and his eternal grave. And so why did the Lord have it this way? And yet, on a better note, why did the Lord do this? Why did he deliver Paul and give him the crown of righteousness? Why did he stand by Paul and strengthen him? Look at the, the middle of verse 17. He says, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And what does that sound like? I charge you, preach the word. You see, people get delivered into the heavenly kingdom only through the preached word. How can they believe if they have not heard, right? In season and out of season. People will hate you. People will label you. They will betray you. And they will desert you. Jesus won't. Friends, Jesus won't. Because the one who was himself totally deserted is the only one who will never desert you. What is the life worth living? What is the life worth leaving? It's the life lived and the life left faithfully. It's the life centered entirely on Jesus Christ and his glorious appearing. And how can we begin to do that? We guard the gospel. We entrust the gospel. We continue in the gospel. And we preach the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, what a privilege it is to gather today to sing, pray, and your, hear your word. We ask that you would press the truths of this passages, these passages deep upon our heart, that we would remember them and hold fast to them to the very end. Give us a laser focus on the appearing of the Lord Jesus, that we might live this life and leave this life faithfully. We love you, Lord. Come quickly. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.